Hi, I'm Ben. Hi, I'm Rob. We've been mates since we met at drama school in 2004. We're both actors, and for the last 10 years we've been working in all sorts of productions, from small fringe shows to big arena tours. We love the theatre, so we thought we would make a podcast to bring you a series of inspiring conversations with interesting people from the world of theatre. So this is our podcast. Welcome to Inside the West End. Inside the West End, with Ben Morris and Rob Copeland. Thank you for downloading episode 12 of Inside the West End. Follow us on Twitter at Inside West End, or if you want to contact us, then email InsideTheWestEnd at gmail.com. We have a very special announcement this week. On this day, today, the day that this episode is released, Rob, who's standing opposite me, uh, will be getting married to the wonderful and beautiful and fabulous and incredibly supportive of this podcast, Abby. They're getting married today up in Manchester. I'm going to be standing next to them at the top of the aisle. So if you're listening to this on the 29th May, there's a good chance I'm probably pacing up and down a hotel room, running through a speech and sweating yeah, profusely. Well, I dab your forehead yeah. with, a, with a damp cloth. Yeah, that's a surreal thought, that, that this is something we're making in, ahead of time and that was such a big moment in my life will be going on people could be listening to this literally as i'm standing waiting for abby to arrive yeah if you're listening to this at like five past four on that sunday then you know what's going on right now holy moly yeah anyway so the reason that we're doing this little off the cuff announcement is because the podcast will be taking a short break because against all odds i'm probably going to have other things on my mind for (laughs) at least a couple of weeks while i'm sat on a beach sipping cocktails so for the next two weeks we're going to take a short break and we will be returning on june the 19th but meanwhile back in inside the west end land uh, coming up we speak to tim minchin in what is the second part of our interview with him uh, well the first part really focused on groundhog day uh, which is shortly opening at the old vic theater in london in this episode tim speaks about his life within the industry i've just thought it's also surreal that tim minchin who is the guest on the episode is also a guest at the wedding so oh, all of true. us in this episode are going to be in, in Manchester. That, yeah, at that point. Yeah. Surreal. Anyway, uh, so yeah, on the first one we heard about Groundhog Day uh, and on this one uh, we hear about the early days uh, and how he has a newfound perspective on life and the industry. His new movie, Larrikins, which is this massive production that he is writing and directing, well, writing the music and directing for DreamWorks that's coming out in the next couple of years. We hear about that and his life in LA. Here it is, Tim Minchin, part two. Right. Get your suit on. I'll grab the rings. Oh, God, I'm sweating, I'm sweating. (laughs) This is Tim Minchin, and you're listening to Inside the West End. Tim Minchin. So you're on earphones. I'm on earphones. I find that distracting. Do you? Should take them off? I I want earphones in my own. No, I don't really find it distracting. I I I know the experience you're having and the experience I'm having are different. I just watched, listened to this uh, podcast where they interviewed Ian McKellen, and on it, he was talking about how he doesn't like using a microphone because he's got this whole concept that theatre should be, you should hear the voice straight from the mouth and go into the ear with yeah. no technology interrupting yeah. you. I mean, that's not practical in modern theatre. Well, I've, I feel quite, I think at the moment I feel the opposite. I think everyone should be trained to be able to speak with their yeah. projected voice, and that's great. But once the show's up, 
and you've got the people doing the play that are doing the play, then the main thing that matters is the emotional content of the play. And if everyone has to shout the whole time to be heard, and they're all wearing bugs anyway to throw their voice up to the back three rows, turn the fucking thing up so they can act. Like, I'll be sitting in a theatre, I can see they're wearing bugs, and they're all projecting as hard as they can, whether that's a lack of training that they're not quite doing. It doesn't fucking matter. Like, I want to hear it now. And a little bit of, little bit of something through the speakers is going to solve that. Yeah. Know? And it's but me and Ian are from uh, different generations, and also he's um, a, a brilliant actor. If I play in a venue, the best experience the audience is going to have is going to be if the room's really dry. Yeah. Miserable for me because the last don't come back. But yeah. it's, but it's lovely and clear for them. Do you have any other ambitions in terms of treading the boards? I'm not that specific about it. I mean, I I have a very strong reaction to things. So when my agent in America or any of my crazy number of reps um, that I've somehow accumulated send me things, I I either, I kind of tend to either want them really badly or not want them at all. And the vast majority of stuff I'm like, do I want to play a Scandinavian flautist in an episode of you know, SUV or whatever, is it SU, SVU? I don't even <laughs> Law and Order I'm SVU. Law and Order, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and, and the answer's no, so I don't audition. And I really, I it's non-specific. I mean, there, there are things I've always thought I'd like to play, like um, I was talking recently to some people about doing Frankenfurter in yet another Rocky Horror. And then I went, actually, you know, I don't need to do that. I don't have to tick every box. I mean, it's part of growing up, I guess. And I've, I've grown up late, if I've grown up at all. But um, I only ever wanted to play Judas, really. I don't really give a shit about anything else. Honestly, it's the only role I ever want to play. <laughs> it's the only role I can play. I'm not very good at anything else. Well, if that's the only role you wanted to play, you, I mean, you've got to do it on a fairly large scale. I got you? to do it in the ultimate scale. I mean, not just in a large scale, but in a manner that I could do it because I probably couldn't do eight shows a week because it's a tough thing for someone like me who's not trained and doesn't really know how to do it. But it was... Um, but I, what, what I feel like as an actor, there's things... I'm, I'm in a very lucky position that I don't have to act for my living and I don't have to sit around waiting for people to offer me roles. And there's things I feel like I can do, and they're not the things that everyone else thinks I can do necessarily. I can't. It's not only, but all actors feel like that. But um, there's a few things. There's, a, there's a, a film in Australia I'm interested in that might happen, and um, I'm, I'm not inundated with offers either. So I'm going to have to um, figure it out myself at some point. When I move back to Sydney, which is the plan in a couple of years, I would like to get involved in theatre again. Mm. You are a commercially successful musical theatre composer. Yeah, with you my are. one, with my yeah, one musical that I was a cog in. Yeah, yeah. We've watched your speeches at the universities. Yeah, and uh, in those speeches, you talk about how commercial success isn't actually the most important thing in life. Well, it's easy for me to say, is of course, mm. but you figured that out over the years. Mm. And that message is fantastic and everybody should watch those videos. Very inspiring. But when did you figure that out? Did I figure it out after I got money or before? <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, that's the interesting question, right? Because it's absolute bullshit for someone who's found a commercially viable art, you know, has found an audience to talk about money not being important. I was, I'm, I've always been happy and I've never been um, driven by money. But I was pretty frustrated early on, or right up to my 30s, and 
I don't, I can't say that that frustration, that frustration to me was, you know, playing cover bands till two in the morning for 80 quid or whatever. It, I mean, it's, it's not really about money, it's about feeling like you're wasting yourself. Understudying Judas and not playing Judas. Yeah, that's right, understudying Judas and not playing Judas. But what I try to say to people is not, I mean, I, I, it's, I try very hard not to preach about money not mattering because that's not fair. What I found in my late 20s, before things started going well for me, before Edinburgh, my first Edinburgh, was that I had just come to the point where I realised I was going to do it for the rest of my life. Like, there was always this thing, like, I'll go back and do a teaching degree and I'll blah, blah, blah. And I had kind of got to the point, like, who are you kidding? I'm, I'm, I'll write music for theatre, I'll, I'll, this is it, I'm going to do this, and we'll figure it out, and we'll be poor. And that was good, and then I didn't have to think like that for much longer so I think you need to be happy that what that you're doing it because it's what you're going to do regardless the point I try to make when I talk to students and stuff is that the thing that the the thing the point I I was trying to make when I was talking to the Mount View students is that we all say oh wealth and wealth and fame don't buy you happiness and that's just people can say as much as you like you still want wealth and fame when you're young I was trying to give a very specific narrative to that because no one believes it that's fine because you know having some money and being moderately well known has been very very good for me so I'm not going to pretend it's not good it's nice I'm I, I have my little family and we're happy and it's good I manage it very very carefully mind you I'm very very careful with what I do with money and I'm very very careful with how much I expose myself to fame it's all managed and I deliberately have um, limited my own exposure in the places where I would have... Like, I, you haven't seen me on a, as a regular on a British TV show, for example, and that's by choice, not by lack of opportunity. Um, however, I wanted to say to people, even the, 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 the point is, the reason you need to come to peace with the fact that you just need to say, well, I'm a theatre maker or I'm an actor and, and I will be that regardless of how much I earn or what happens is not just because you can't control whether or not you get successful, but also the, some of the versions of success are genuinely not good for you and not healthy and not fun and make people sad and thin and alone and all that. And so I was trying to, trying to put a, a spotlight on that as well because that's, there's two sides to it. One is being at peace with where you are and the other is not coveting something that's not actually so something you should covet. <laughs> you're saying you, you kind of accepted that before the success came I think so yeah that's kind of where I was at in my life it probably puts you in a, in a better position to be successful right I think so I mean the other thing the other thing is there's no I can't there's no lesson to be learnt from my career because my career is a an outlier I mean I, and I don't mean like I'm special I mean it's just a it's just who the fuck goes this way because all I did in 2003 when I first started doing cabaret is go, fuck, I can't get a record deal, I can't get an acting agent. I think they all think I'm making it up when I say I'm an actor, writer, blah, blah, blah. And so I'm going to do a show and I'm going to show off. And, that's, and that became comedy. And then when the RSC said, have you ever thought about writing a musical, it happened that I was able to show them eight theatre shows I've composed for in my past, which no one knew I'd done. There's nothing I did that anyone should be trying to emulate. It's absurd. And even saying vacuous, broad-ranging things like, well, stay true to yourself and believe in yourself, that's bullshit too, because that doesn't work unless it does. 
I mean, either you have a worldview and a bunch of skills that at some point intercept with an audience, or you don't. You should work fucking hard and you should read lots of books and be an educated person and be curious and and don't try and be something that other people want you to be. But all this stuff is doesn't mean anything. Talk to us about the States. You're based in LA at the moment. Yeah. You spent a bit of time uh, in and around Broadway as well, you know, with the show and stuff. Talk to us about the difference between Broadway and the West End. Is there much difference? I find Broadway hard. I mean, Broadway is a wonderful place with a wonderful tradition, but it's like, it seems... Of course it's driven by commercial impetus. I mean, so is the West End. They they are the most commercial places theatre exists on the planet. But, you know, I didn't write... A Broadway show, we, we wrote a, a Christmas show for Stratford that outgrew itself and so I've never really written for Broadway or the West End, I've written for Stratford and in Groundhog Day I kind of wrote for Danny and me and you know, obviously we hope Groundhog Day will go to Broadway. I'm not really answering your question but just as it happens, I think thinking about the West End and Broadway as your aims is, is a bit like thinking about what's commercially successful, it's the same thing, it's a complete distraction. But don't what, don't but write I, something for Broadway. I mean, that's like what, you'll just write a piece away, away from creating pieces of work for yeah. those for those the districts. actual world. Uh, yeah, yeah the, just an overview of of the two different places. Are yeah. they is one more creative than the other? Is one more fun than the other? What's your experience? I don't know. I don't know. I can't. I, it's too personal. I, I love the West End and I love Broadway. I mean, the first time I walked through Times Square and saw our marquee on that theatre, I just couldn't believe it. You know absolutely unbelievable when you come from Perth or you know when you've come when it's been a long sort of path but the thing about writing a piece like Matilda is we wrote it caring absolutely deeply about the story and making a piece of theatre that we would want to see and it was Dennis and Matthew and I Matthew who has incredible knowledge but but also is able to not think reactively or commercially and Dennis who doesn't give a shit about commercial musicals and me who had never written one on this scale all we cared about is the piece and I've tried to retain that in Groundhog Day so I know I'm kind of circling around the point is once something becomes commercially successful and this is absolutely not a moan I've never Matilda totally changed my life and its commercial success has given me artistic freedom that I never thought I'd have but it it becomes something else, you know. It is now a commercial enterprise with hundreds of people involved, thousands. And, at, and the thing that brings me most joy is that whatever it is, 30,000, 40,000 people a week see Matilda around the world. And in those, in those crowds are hundreds of kids who have never been to the theatre and people who saved up and caught a train from Glasgow. And all these people are having this incredibly positive experience, hopefully, not just positive entertainment-wise, but these great messages about girls and power and books and learning and not giving up and, and taking control of your own destiny, all these lovely little lessons. And we're employing thousands of people a day, which I, I can't tell you. It kind of struck me really late. I went, something that I help make employs thousands of people in mm. our industry, and that's something I'm incredibly proud of. You're making a difference on... On a lot, on of, a lot of levels. and With the message and the, the literal thing of... Giving, and giving people work and giving people joy and I get to make money out of it and I get artistic freedom out of it and, and there's something out in the world that I help make that is good on the other side is just that it's hard and as an 
actor and as a performer who's worked for nothing for many, many years, I have the, the, the fact that Matilda's now a massive commercial enterprise sits awkwardly for me because I can't control how it rolls out anymore. And I just desperately, desperately want all the producers who ever touch any of my work to understand that if anyone's not being treated right, then they are not doing their jobs right and they don't get to get paid and I don't get to get paid until everyone's being treated right. Oh, it's interesting. You can tell how sort of conflicted I am about yeah. it. It's, it I, I want... It's very hard when something gets as successful as Matilda to know that it's all good. Yeah. And I can tell you it's so close to all good because it is such a positive piece and it does bring so much joy and employment, but... um. But it's fucking multinational, you know? Yeah. And with, I'm and it's my fault. With the multinational <laughs> thing of Matilda, do you ever I mean you would have seen it dozens and dozens of times all around the world. Yeah. Do you ever sit there, know it's a brand and that's it, as in it it's a settled piece. Yeah. But as an artist, do you ever sit there, watch it and go, Oh, I didn't think of that, or I could have tweaked that, or is it a totally closed project? Uh no, I, I, I don't think like that because um the trouble with long running shows is that they drift away from what you made and that is what is hard when you watch it is that you go oh shit this has been running for two years with a an associate director who's twice removed and Matthew can't be there all the time and so the piece has become something that and Matilda sits tonally so so just on one side of pantomime and it can flop the other side so easily that when I'm sitting in the show all I'm worrying about is in what ways is this flopping towards pantomime and how can we pull it back towards this sort of delicate, dark thing we made? And so I'm, uh, I'm not thinking about how we could improve the piece. I'm, trying, I'm thinking about how we can get it to be the piece. Yeah. Are we allowed to ask you about your project in LA? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What, um, Probably much safer <laughs> for me to talk about. Is, um, so you're writing a movie, which is a musical... Am I think, right thinking it's DreamWorks or have I made that up? DreamWorks. When you're writing a piece like that movie, which is an yeah. ongoing project, uh, and you're having, to, you're having to dip in and out and also do Groundhog Day, do you ever sit down and go, right, I've set today aside for Groundhog Day, you sit down and go, oh, I, I, do you know what? My brain's in this other yeah, one, I can't. I can't do days. I can barely do weeks. It's more like months. It has to be chunks. So Larrikins is churning on in LA at the moment, and they call me every now and then, and I, it's so fun, and I have such a good time, but my God, I mean, Larrikins is huge huge movie and I'm directing it as well which I've never done before obviously and directing an animated film is not like directing a live action film you don't actually need to have made films before to direct an animated film because of the structure around it but you better have some clarity of vision and you know and they're big big decisions and a lot of pressure from executives who Mm. are telling you that this is how movies work and I spend half my time going well that's not how this one works and and they know and I know that I've never done this before but I also know that they've never made an Australian musical comedy road movie rock and roll no one has and if anyone's going to get it right it's probably I'm about the right person or at least I should back myself to because no one else is going to get that right there's no one else in that studio who kind of gets the tone of what this piece is better than me and Harry the writer so Harry wrote this amazing script that I got like three years ago and then I started writing songs for it and then I started getting very bossy about how that should work and then they said well why don't you direct it and I said well I'll co-direct it and so 
do you ever get yourself in these situations, these big projects, where whether it be a musical or film or play, you go, you chase it, you get, you get it, it's happening, and then do you have a moment where you go, oh god, I've actually got to do this now, or panic? Yeah, all the time, especially Larrikins, which I'm two years into a four-year project, and it's 120 million dollars. You know, you you've got to be careful with your brain. You know. You know this thing, everyone, what do they call it? Um, imposter syndrome, where everyone who has any success thinks they're going to get found out to be the average person they are. I mean, you, you have to understand that it's totally normal because what you learn as you get more success is that there's no one very special in the world. Mm. Um, Matthew's probably the most special person I've met in a way that when I met him, I went, I want to listen to this guy. Mostly as you work your way up the ladder, you keep waiting for the gurus and they're freaking not there. Which isn't to say there aren't amazing, smart, talented, brilliant people, but there's no granddaddy, there's no one, there's no uncle who will always go, don't worry, I know how to do this. Not a doubt, Spielberg or fucking anyone. They don't, they're just people like us. They're just people with some skills. And so you have to very quickly, if, if what happened, if, if you have a career like mine where it turned quite quickly from being utterly powerless to reasonably not powerless you got to very quickly adjust and and just try and be objective and try and well focus on the story and focus on making the people around you feel good and inspired and happy like I've got 100 people working on this film in LA that I'm kind of one of the people that needs to keep them focused and happy and not get freaked out by the magnitude of it all yeah it's a leadership role, mm. apart from anything else. And the only way you can have the courage of your own convictions without being a megalomaniac is to make sure what you're having convictions about is story and the truth of a thing rather than convictions about your own inconvincibleness. Unconvincibleness? I, I can stomp my feet, and not stomp my feet, but stand my ground and be very stubborn to very, very powerful people in Hollywood not because I think I know better than them in general or think I'm special. It's because I am listening to their ideas about the story and I don't think they're right. It, once you just think about the story, then, then all your ego and all that doesn't fucking matter. It's just like, well, that's not going to be as funny. <laughs> Hope you're enjoying the conversation. Stay with us and we'll be back to the chat in a moment. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast. We release a new episode every Sunday, and if you subscribe, it'll just appear on your device ready for you to listen to. It's really easy to subscribe. Just go to your podcast app. If it's an iPhone, then next to the logo for our show, you'll see a little settings wheel that looks like a cog. Click on that. A few options down, it says subscribe. Or if you're using an Android phone, then on the Double Pod or Podbean app, next to the logo of our show is the subscribe button. Press it, easy as that, and the best part is it's completely free. Thank you to the people who have already left us a rating on iTunes. We really appreciate that, but we'd love some more. We put a lot of work into making this show and giving it to you for free. So this week, we're also asking for you to go and give us some feedback. Please rate our show and give us a review. It only takes a couple of seconds and it makes a big difference to our placement in the charts. All of our previous episodes are still available for download, so why don't you go and check them out? Don't be scared of the people you've not heard of. Uh, We've specifically picked people in the industry who have really interesting, varied backgrounds, great chat, funny people. So people like Debbie O'Brien, Even O'Bazada, West End producer, Killian Donnelly. Go and check them all out. Make sure you stay tuned right to the end of this episode and you will hear a clip of who's going to be on the next show, which comes out on June 19th. Now back to the chat with Tim. 
when you think bacteria life, right? We're, we're, so we're going to produce pop, and you're, you've written it, and you're going to play the main part, and that's going to happen. You must have punched the air and gone, yes. And now Dark Side is going to go from Melbourne to Edinburgh. You're going to play Hamlet. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. You must seriously punch the air. Matilda's transferring to Broadway. Amazing. Yeah. You know, you've got kids. You've yeah. got a family. Those things happen. They're healthy. Happy days. Yeah. Punch the air. Yeah. Do you still punch the air? Or has, have you become numb, numb to that? Well, punching the air moments are hard. And it's very important that when I talk sort of introspectively like I am now, that people don't think it, I'm, I'm ungrateful. I mean, I am, I've said it a million times before that I literally think I've got the best career of anything I could have possibly dreamed of and pretty much anyone I know. And it comes with incredible gratefulness and joy and stuff, but no, nothing simple. I mean, you know, you, you're educated and wealthy and, you know, compared to the vast majority of the world, but you don't punch the air every day. You find the hot water still running out of the taps. I mean... Your life is your life, and it comes with challenges. And and I guess perspective is only given if the moment before was the absolute opposite. If you, <laughs> yeah. if you get a call one day saying, Matilda's going to Canada, yeah, and then the next day they say, and we're going to do it in Tokyo, yeah, you're going to be excited, but I guess it's not as exciting as the moment you're told, we're going to do it at the RSC at Christmas. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And the, and the moments that you punch the air about are not necessarily the moments that people expect, but like if I could have seen what's happened, I just would have died. Yeah. And so I understand young people looking at a career like mine and thinking, I mean, that would just be amazing. It, it is. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely amazing. But I was up between four and six this morning, so when I woke up, and, and I missed my daughter's birthday yesterday, and I went and saw Kate Mulvaney's adaptation of Medea and cried for an hour afterwards. It's so disturbing. And so today I feel tired and I'm not sure if Groundhog Day is any good and I've got a gig when I get back to LA and I'm booked into a 1200 seater and I don't have any new material I don't know why I did that I did it because I like to do a charity gig every year but I, I now I'm scared my audience are going to come and go well that's disappointing that's the same old shit and I hate I don't want to disappoint the audience and you know so on a day-to-day -day level today I'm tired and mm. a little bit overwrought and but my god, my, my career is everything it looks like. It's fucking amazing. You know? <laughs> but the things that, you know, opening night in Stratford upon Avon with my whole family there over from Australia and the snow falling and my, my orchestra show having opened the night before and the curtain coming down and watching the reviewers rush out, knowing, just knowing they were going to like it because we were in the room and they would have had to be subhuman to have not liked it. And then going to the after party afterwards and Lissy Dahl coming up to me who I hadn't met and crying. And, and that, uh, that's when Matilda peaked for me. Um, Have both your children seen Matilda now? Yeah, well, Violet saw it. Violet's seen it many times. Casper's seen it twice. He doesn't mind it. He goes, I like the chalk. And, uh, you know, like he's such a boy. Violet saw it at four on my lap in the first ever public performance, a sort of friends and family preview. Got a bit freaked out. Um, yeah, they like it. When you write a piece which stars children, you're bound to have friends who have children. Are you trying to get their kids in it? By video, this is my daughter singing. Oh yeah, yeah, I see quite a lot of that. Oh, it's gorgeous. I mean, Mat Matilda's just like you couldn't, you couldn't ask for a sort of nicer, warmer thing. You know, yeah. I think about people who get success. Kind of, well, I think about some of my early success with comedy, where it's stuff that I'm not hugely proud of now. But I was just singing being contentious in a 30-seat cabaret room in Melbourne and then suddenly they're on big stages and I'm like, shit. And I think, 
it's fine. It's fine. I'm not ashamed of anything I wrote, but a few things I'm like, I wouldn't write that now, you know, because it, it's contextual. And I think about some people who get success with something that they, makes them a millionaire, but they think, well, I'm not hugely proud of that, but it's the thing that bought me my mansion. Yeah. And you think, fuck, I'm so lucky that the thing that gave me real sort of solid success is something so special, you know, and something in which I was just a cog. It's good. It's, it's positive. Groundhog Day is better, though. I'm really looking forward to Groundhog Day. <laughs> and it doesn't have freaking kids. Oh, my God. Kids are a nightmare. Less rehearsals, I yeah, guess. Yeah, so <laughs> many rehearsals. So many variables. You touched on going to the theatre. Oh. And you, I know you've been going a lot since you've been in London. Yeah. Um, not necessarily in the last week, but looking back, what, what pieces of theatre stick in your head that you've seen? And it's hard not to remember Jerusalem. It's usually straight theatre that really destroys me I find I find theatre the most emotional and moving and the capacity for theatre to transcend and transform and when theatre's good it's there's nothing like it watching a human in a room do a thing like that it's it's unparalleled good theatre and when I say good theatre I you know prefer something under 100 minutes with no interval and not too much set (laughs) can just trap you trap you must you. have loved Harry Ape <laughs> <laughs> oh I did love Harry Ape actually that's exactly what you've just described <laughs> well there's quite a lot of set I mean um, there's a few things that Harry Ape that were strange to me and but um shit man Bertie Carvel hey I know crazy he's attentive to detail yeah he's yeah, a freakazoid but the, Harry Ape's a really good thing to talk about if you're interested if your listeners are really interested in theatre, and I'm, I'm sure they all agree, and you agree, that the thing to remember is that, um, and I say this often and it's becoming slightly cliched and pat, but that art is an offer. You, when you go to the theatre, you're being offered something, and too often reviewers and people, when they talk about theatre, it's more like they're going, I want a unit of stuff. Is this the unit of stuff that I wanted? You know, Is this what I ordered? No, it's not. Judge, judge. It's like, no, no, you, you're just going to take an offer you don't have to take it but you should go utterly open to the offer not expecting you know like I say I prefer things under 100 minutes with not too much set but but I also love fucking I'll I'll watch anything you know Mm. and you go totally open and so Harry Ape you know the the theatre wasn't full because it doesn't do what most people want when they go to the theatre apart from anything else there's a moment where the where the Cinderella sees the prince across the room Although in this case it's a stoker and a, it's a gender flip version. And you want for the rest of the play for him to get back to her, to find a way back. But of course he can't. That's the fucking point. But the thing is, it's like Harry Ape doesn't do what people want out of theatre, but, but because it doesn't narratively satisfy you. But it's so great to be able to go to theatre and see something so detailed and so different and so kind of finely wrought and walk out unsatisfied. Yeah. But it's just a bit of theatre you got that day with some ideas that you can think about, about class and the in, imperviousness of class barriers now and then and, and about the detail of Bertie's performance. You can think about all oh, the, the yellow of that thing and the naked boy's bottoms and the, and the gorilla and the frickin' whatever you want. You've, you've taken this thing in and you don't have to say, that's the sort of theatre I like or that failed in the following regards. You just take it. It's part of what you've consumed that week in the arts. Fucking, it was so beautiful. Mm. 
and I, I could talk for hours about what it says, but I don't need to, you know. We don't need to think how I would have done it. <laughs> it's not, it's crazy. My mum uh, introduced me to theatre and took me to lots of things at the National. She just literally would pick a name of a play and would go and see it. I was yeah. very, very lucky. The less you know, the better. Yeah, and she said to me once about it, we went to see something which my, my dad and my sister walked out of at the interval. And mm. afterwards she said to me, she said, I don't understand why you would do that because... For there's always something in it, mm. even if it's just the costumes, mm. or even yeah. if it's she said, the I, way that actor used his hands. Yeah, or, mostly if you go to theatre open, really open, and sometimes I'm so open that I can't recover, like last night. But you you usually not walk out. You don't walk out because like why would you walk out of something mm. unless you're so? I mean, sometimes I'm not very good with operas. I have seen operas where the pain of trying to stay awake. Because if you go see opera tired and the first act is two and a half hours long and you're just like, I can't, can't do it. Mm. It's too much Russian. (laughs) 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 Whatever. But, um, yeah, so uh, I do like plays. I mean, I liked, um, before I wrote Matilda, I went and saw a lot of musicals and little night music that Alex Hansen was in was probably the best thing I saw, even though I'm not a Sondheim fanatic. Not that I don't love it, I just haven't seen it all because I don't pursue stuff particularly um uh hamilton might be one of the best musical it might be the best musical i've ever seen i i think the thing with hamilton is it's done what i wanted to do and i haven't seen in the heights so i assume lin-manuel was doing this already but hip-hop is the language of sung through musicals i mean it's like the 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 sondamian recitative versus songs and this is just hip-hop screams that doesn't it? Mm. I mean, hip hop is recitative, but it's spoken word. But and then you're in a song. I mean, it's like the world is just waiting for someone who really understands hip hop and really understands musical theatre to come along. And it's fucking Lin Manuel. By mm. I mean, and he really does understand both those things. And so it, it's like this thing that's been waiting to happen. I'm sure there's lots of little things that I haven't seen off-Broadway and blah, blah, blah. Again, sometimes I'm so open because I'm not... I try not to be a critical viewer. There might be things that if I went and saw it again, I would go, oh, OK, I don't know. I could maybe, but I don't know. And I haven't listened to the album and I knew nothing about it beforehand. I just saw it that one night and I'm just going to leave it like that for now. But he fucking did it. Mm. He did exactly what that potential is. It's, it's just hip-hop lame is. But that's doing it a disservice. And why... You've got to see it, man. Yeah. I've seen it in the Heights. I went to see that a few weeks and it kind of yeah. blew, my, blew my mind a bit. Yeah, the, yeah. The, I mean, I went along knowing that they had, it had that element. It had this nightmare of, oh no, white middle-class musical theatre performers trying to be hip-hop and street. This could be yeah. um, a disaster. So do they cast white middle-class musical theatre? I couldn't tell you because I was a person that was and it was, they were just people and they were... I mean, brilliant. Like, it's yeah. really good production. The yeah. theatre it's in, I loved as well. Yeah. Like, the way they use that space. But you talk... Oh, oh, could almost go tonight. We're making a theatre podcast. What would you like to hear in a theatre podcast? I think it's really interesting to hear how people interpret it. I think the, the main thing you want to do is not only talk to actors, which obviously you're, you're not doing, because... Well, partly because partly there's so many actors, and, and but also actors believe lots of wrong stuff <laughs> about fate and everything happening for a reason and, you know, meaning, and they're very superstitious people, and you've got to be careful of us. When I say actors, I'm, I include myself, but um, 
But um, <laughs> good luck. Thank you very much. Don't Thanks. fuck it up. <laughs> Thanks, man. Absolute pleasure. We just wanted to say yet again a massive thank you to Tim for taking that time to speak to us. Tim is an incredibly busy guy. Uh, it was amidst the workshops of Groundhog Day. He spent an hour and a half with us. Go and check Groundhog Day out. It's on at the Old Vic this summer. Tickets are now on sale. It's bound to be an amazing piece of theatre. Go and see it. Also a massive thank you to you, our listeners. We have listeners all around the world. Thousands of you out there listening to us. So get in contact with us. We love to hear what you think of the show. On Twitter at Inside West End. If you know anyone who likes theatre or likes listening to podcasts generally, tell them about what we're doing. Uh, we've lined up some really exciting guests for the upcoming episodes, so spread the word. Remember to stay tuned to the very end for a clip of the next episode, but before that, we make this podcast for free. If you've enjoyed it and you'd like to help us make future episodes, then here's how you can. Next time you shop online with Amazon, visit InsideTheWestEnd.com first click on any of the Amazon adverts on our site. It will take you straight to Amazon. Your shopping will cost you exactly the same as normal, but Amazon will give us a small kickback as a thank you. Also on InsideTheWestEnd.com, you'll see a donate button. If you'd like to make a direct contribution, then click on the button and follow the link. Just to remind you, there will be no new episodes for the coming two weeks. So if you need a fix, why not go back and check out our previous episodes? They're all still available from download. Uh, and you can listen to them and picture me laying on a beach somewhere sipping a mojito. However, if you are subscribed to Inside the West End podcast, you're going to receive a couple of little bonus episodes over the coming two weeks. We're not going to announce them and they will just appear on your device for free so go and subscribe now if you've yet to do so now as promised we have a clip of our next full episode which again comes out on june 19th it features an incredibly inspiring actress a wonderful woman who's a member of a dynasty of performers um, women in particular who've played most of the leading roles in the big west end shows over the last couple of decades here's our clip of our chat with summer stralin I, I'm loving seeing all these things like the strallometer, strallometer, and you know the the high kick. If it's a good show, they've got it on a five, and if it, you know if they don't like it, it's a one. You know, and it's it's degrees of what you know how high you can get your leg, and you know. And I loved this one on Buzzfeed the other day where it said um, that awkward moment when you go into a pineapple class uh, where it says general, but is actually okay for a Strallen and you feel like you want to die. I thought that was quite sweet. You know, it's all very yeah. flattering. There's, there's some really flattering stuff. <laughs>